Welcome to the Church Times podcast. This week, Madeline Davies interviews Pete Gregg, who describes himself as the bewildered instigator of the 24-7 prayer movement. He's also closely involved with the Archbishop of Canterbury's Thy Kingdom Come Prayer Initiative. Pete is a pastor and the author of books including God on Mute and Dirty Glory. His latest book is called How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People, published by Hodder. It's available at the Church Times Bookshop for the special price of £12.60. Go to chbookshop.co.uk. If you don't yet subscribe to the Church Times, check out our £10 new reader offer. Try 10 weeks of the print edition for £10. Get the paper delivered each week, full access to our website and digital archive, and the iPhone and iPad apps. Or try the digital offer. For just £10, or €12, or US dollars receive two months of full online access. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Tear Fund and Comrades did a survey last year which found that 51% of people said they prayed and by far the highest response about why they prayed was that they were in a time of crisis and that was higher than I believe in God or I believe that prayer makes a difference. Um, And I wondered about how you thought we should respond to that finding. So does it matter if prayer is just a private thing that people reach for in a moment of crisis or should the church and Christians be reaching out across that common ground to people to to try and kind of expand on that well the first thing to say is it's the most natural thing in the world to cry out to god when we're in a crisis and the root of the word prayer the the latin is precarious we pray because life's precarious and marvelous and too big for our heads and our hearts to contain and so uh, all the surveys show for example that even atheists tend to cry out to god in a crisis so uh, Karl Barth, the great theologian, said at its simplest, prayer is, is asking. So we must start by saying that's good and fine and appropriate and proper and human. But then I think as the church, we have uh, a privilege to help people go a little bit beyond just the kind of 999 prayers. And we, we see prayer, don't we, as a conversation in which we listen to God as well as talk to him but also probably at its deepest is communion and a a connection with God that is even beyond uh, words. And as we push into those kinds of prayers, I believe that we we deepen in our our relationship with God and we ourselves are changed. So you've called it um, sort of a guide for normal people. Mm. Why did you feel it was important to have something kind of very practical that explains to people how to pray? Well, everybody prays. But most people find it difficult, actually. The first really big question that the apostles asked Jesus was, Lord, teach us to pray. So this is a 2,000-year-old question. Um, Nicky Gumbel, who who kindly wrote the foreword to the book, writes a daily devotional called The Bible in One Year, and that has two million users. The single most downloaded day every single year from The Bible in One Year is the one entitled How to Pray. So this is the question that Christians... Uh, around the world are asking more than any and I think it's because we understand that prayer is really the heart and soul of our faith but we all have struggles and questions and I called the book uh, How to Pray a Simple Guide for Normal People because a lot of the prayer books and I have read quite a lot are awfully complicated and seem to be aimed at people as sort of postgraduate in theology and you know mystics and I wanted to write something for ordinary people, maybe new Christians, maybe people around the block have gone around the block a few times but are asking sensible questions about 
How do I hear God for myself? How do I move beyond just asking? How do I intercede, move in greater authority? Uh, how do I go deeper in contemplation? How do I maybe even engage in spiritual warfare? And there's also a chapter in there about unanswered prayer. So I'm trying to give the whole menu <laughs> so people can order what, what they fancy. I was reading some research from the charity Youthscape, um, and a really prominent theme when they were talking to teenagers was death, prayer, and the afterlife. Um, and nearly all of the young, young people that they interviewed had experiences of prayer, even if they wouldn't call themselves religious. And many had prayed in very difficult situations. And one of the quotes in the report said, for the young people who had prayed but showed little sign of change afterwards, it seemed as though praying was just something you did when you needed help, but that God was not then particularly relevant to the rest of life. But for some young people, those prayer moments were transformative. It seemed that the prayer moment and subsequent answers or lack of answers from God counted as a proof either of God's existence or lack of existence. Um, And that really resonated with me because I can think of people who struggle with God because they feel that um, that they did pray, they did reach out and they didn't receive an answer. And that just seemed to be really pertinent for teenagers as well. Um, So I just wondered what I know you've written um, God on mute and I just wondered what your thoughts were around that. It doesn't surprise me, first of all, that that piece of research, like really all, all all those types of research show that people, including young people, do pray. One of the things we've discovered in almost 20 years of 24-7 prayer is that people who don't want to be preached at still do want to be prayed for. And even a lot of people don't say they don't believe in God, still believe in prayer. It's quite an interesting phenomenon. People almost never decline prayer, provided you're polite and your breath doesn't smell so um, prayer is a third space it is a missional connection point with those who might be less sure about their faith or lack of it in terms of God answering uh, prayer you know obviously we want to try and help people as they move forward on their faith journeys to understand that God is not a cosmic slot machine seeking to oblige our requests uh, with, with, with you know peace in the Middle East or you know the healing of a disease that, that, that God is greater than our understanding and sometimes uh, you know, one of the simple analogies I use in the book is that familiar uh, one of, of a traffic light. Sometimes we ask God for things and we get a green light. We do get a miracle. Well, actually, we get miracles far more often than we realize. I think just waking up in bed this morning on this incredible planet, sort of a miracle. Then sometimes we get a red light. God just says a clear no to us. And that is his prerogative as God. That can hurt like hell. Um, sometimes we look back with great gratitude as a teenager I prayed to become a zookeeper and I quite wanted to marry a spice girl I'm so grateful that God denied both those requests with all due deference to both spice girls and uh, zoologists Um, and then sometimes we hear amber lights where we have to keep praying and persevere and wait but when you're in an amber light it's a very bad time to turn off the car and abandon the vehicle. This is a time to keep the engine ticking over, keep praying, and be preparing to move. So, you know, we're in a culture that doesn't find waiting easy, but God only has two speeds, suddenly and slowly. And um, most things he does suddenly have taken years in the making. Most miracles take years in the making. 
And so sometimes we see sudden answers to prayer, and sometimes the answers to prayer are very, very slow. That's the story of the Bible. Mm. You're the founder of 24-7 um, Prayer, and you established... Not um, really. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to... Well, uh, yeah. you know, I, I really can't take credit for 24-7. Mm. If you had come to me with this as an idea, I'd have told you it was a bad idea. Okay. We started one prayer room in one church on the south coast of England because we realized prayer is the key to everything in life and we were bad at it. We weren't trying to start a movement. I tried to stop that night and day prayer room after a couple of weeks because I figured you should quit while you were ahead. But someone else said we should re-keep going and it's thanks to them, not me, that we're now in over half the nations on earth. No one could be more surprised than me. You know, there are things you can make happen with business plans and Excel spreadsheets and budgets, and that's a jolly good thing. This is not one of those. We have been in a state of almost constant surprise for almost 20 years at what happens when God's people pray, but it just keeps spreading. We have no marketing budget. We're not trying to make this happen. The phrase we always use is, we're not trying to make waves, we're trying to surf waves. Mm. So forgive me. I know it's yeah. semantics, <laughs> but I don't really like being called the founder. I, I, I can't take credit for this. Um, and in, in terms of um, Thy Kingdom Come, which I think a lot of our um, readers um, would sort of possibly associate you with, um, what difference do you see that um, making? So every year we, we report that um, Thy Kingdom Come is sort of coming round again. Um, I wondered if you could talk a bit about what impact you think that's had on the country. Yeah, I mean, Thy Kingdom Come is the most extraordinary story, and we must uh, banish cynicism, pinch ourselves, and realise what is happening on our watch. The sort of thing that many people have been dreaming of and praying for is taking place now. I think sometimes in the church, especially if I may say so, the Church of England, we're not always very good at dealing with encouragement. <laughs> we're much better at dealing with death and discouragement. What we have, thanks to Archbishop Justin's uh, courageous leadership, is a phenomenon that three years ago started with five cathedrals. Uh, by the way, I said to him, don't you think we'd better start with one or two? But it was his vision and faith. I was trying to talk him down. The five were full. Winchester was overflowing. Mm. And now after three years, it's in, I think it's 85 countries and over a million people in this country. What is the significance of that? The first significance is this, people are praying. The greatest answer to prayer is prayer. Uh, God finds it easy to answer prayers, but it's the, the, a human decision to choose to pray. And so when you have that many people, that hungry for God, that in itself is a very, very significant thing we should be alert to. Secondly, unity. It's amazing that people of different traditions who really wouldn't have prayed together, especially in cathedrals a number of years ago, are now coming together to cry out to God in uh, this way. And it's not without its complications. Um, I've been involved uh, all three years in various cathedrals, and I always get personally letters of complaint from both sides the people who think it was riotous and uh, and inappropriate and the people who thought it was the most boring tame thing ever and if i only get complaints from one side i'll know we'll have got it wrong so the unity piece is, is i think very exciting a sign of something that's happening in the nation not least under archbishop justin's uh, leadership and then of course the great prayer is thy kingdom come and I think at a time of Brexit chaos and 
24-hour digital porn and all the other challenges between those two extremes, we really do need to pray. And people who maybe a few years ago thought the great solution was political or economic are starting to think it might be time to vote Jesus. And one of the ways we can do that is through prayer. Um, so I, I'm incredibly encouraged by thy kingdom come. Is it everything we're hoping for? No. Is it a beginning? You better believe it. This Every transformational renewal of the spirit through church history began with a movement of prayer. And we're currently seeing the most significant movement of prayer in a generation. Great, thank you. Um, there's an interesting quote in, in the book um, where you say, there are probably many of us who fail to fully grasp God's holiness. We have a notion of divine love devoid of divine sovereignty. Unwittingly, we have unhallowed the Father's name. And in losing the godness of God, we struggle with prayer because we fail to grasp the mind-blowing privilege of simply being in the presence of the living God. Familiarity breeds apathy until we can barely be bothered to try. And I wonder if you could talk a bit more um, around that, where you see that happening, or perhaps why sort of people can fall into that kind of risk. Yeah, most people's biggest problem with prayer is God. They don't understand him in one of two ways. On one hand, there are a lot of people who don't think that God likes them and is kind. And understandably, therefore, maybe subconsciously, they try and avoid his presence. Very sensible. If you think God is continually scowling, judging and disapproving, why would you want to spend time alone with him? Um, so that's the first thing. And that's why Jesus says we should jolly well start our prayers, our Father in heaven. He's a loving, kind, good, gracious, colourful, imaginative, creative, generous God. But then other people's problem with prayer is their perception of God is all imminence and no transcendence. Uh, we reduce God to a sort of cosmic teddy bear. You know, this idea that God is always nice, which C.S. Lewis famously addressed when he said, Aslan is not a tame lion. As I get older, I find a, a surprising comfort and even intimacy in the mystery of God. I can walk out under the stars at night and whisper and have a sense that I am heard by a divinity far beyond my own um, ability to understand. And that helps me navigate the chaos and the uh, disappointments, the um, pain of life, to trust in the greatness of God. And so I think probably my journey coming from, you know, quite a low church charismatic background has been to discover the, uh, the, 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 the sovereignty, the, 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 the holiness, the otherness, the transcendence of God. And I, I watch others, as it were, coming down the escalator in the other direction, having had a very high view of God, maybe having not thought that God would be interested in answering their little prayers, discovering the kindness and the the goodness and the proximity of God. When I went through a very uh, painful number of years with my wife close to death's door and suffering, she still does from a chronic illness, um, the charismatic church of which I was one of the leaders became a place that I found hard to inhabit on a Sunday. And I, as I said, I was one of the leaders. Um, the, the, the sort of happiness of it all uh, seemed 
um, unreal. And I started, and many of your readers will love this, start, I started to sneak away. I to, have this quote to, here on my yeah, list. <laughs> to, to the local cathedral. Uh, and I would put up my hoodie uh, like a man entering a strip club, deeply ashamed lest anyone should see me s slipping in to take uh, the sacrament in uh, that place. But I found enormous comfort in the fact that every word was thoughtful and in feeling part of something very, very old. Now, it was only a few months, others of your readers will be pleased to hear, before I started to long for a little more creativity, spontaneity and perhaps a deeper sense of community and uh, retreated to the other end of the candle. But I do believe that we need both. Hmm. Um, you talk about um, perhaps sort of suggestion that evangelicalism doesn't have enough repetition. And I was really interested in the book that you drew yeah. on quite a wide range. So you have your list of um, kind of heroes of prayer yeah. and you drew on the Desert Fathers mm. and you drew on Susanna Wesley and quite a, a wide range of resources. Do you think there's a change that if we if we sort of stay in our tradition that we um, maybe fail to look to things which seem a bit intimidating or not that, that we grew up with, but that our our prayer life is kind of minimised if we if we don't if we're not able to look beyond where we've come from? Yeah, I, I think prayer is is like a, a menu in a restaurant or a toolbox with many tools. Uh, there are many ways to pray, and what tends to happen is different Christian traditions tend to take one or two tools out of the toolbox and say, these are the real tools. We'll train you to use these ones. Um, which is great if you need a screwdriver or a hammer, but not so good if you need a monkey wrench. Um, or, or, or to change the analogy, they serve you one or two dishes from the menu, but after a while your nutrition is deficient because actually you need a broader range of foods. And so I think it is inevitable that uh, as we mature in faith, we start to long for the full menu uh, or to be able to use all of the different tools. And so I've never seen why I should limit myself. Um, and, you know, churches and traditions tend to legitimize certain spiritual methodologies according to the psychology, history, uh, and proclivities of that particular tradition. So, for example, there are certain churches where if you say, let us pray, everyone moves into the shampoo position uh, and goes quiet. But then you can go into the church three blocks down the road and say, let's pray, and everyone stands up, starts pacing around and shouting out loud. And um, if you're a, an extrovert in the former, uh, you think you're bad at prayer because everyone goes quiet and you don't know what to think. Your brain is like a fishbowl with a goldfish circling. You don't know what you think until you speak out loud, until you write, whatever. And if you're a, a massive introvert in the more external expressions of prayer where everyone's shouting, you probably think you're bad at prayer, but actually you just need everyone to shut up so you can get some space. So we want to help people learn how to pray the way God has made them, first of all, and legitimize that. And secondly, we want to help churches to embrace the full menu of prayer and not feel they've just got to stick to intercession or contemplation to take those two extremes. Um, there are several ex 
uh, stories of the sort of the supernatural or the extraordinary in the book. Um, so I'm thinking of the man who prayed on Westminster Bridge just mm. before the most recent terrorist attack. Um, there's another story about a man who found the mother of his foster son in a city by asking God for directions at every street corner. And when I was reading it, I was really reminded of Justin Welby's call to give up cynicism for Lent, um, because I, I just sense from the book that you're um, very happy and very alive to seeing God's presence um, and God's providence in those stories. Um, so how much do you reflect when you're sharing stories like this? Um, I, I guess about that balance be- between kind of showing wisdom and discernment and resisting cynicism, which would just say, well, it was a coincidence. Yeah, well, cynicism, Douglas Copeland says cynicism is like battery acid. It'll rot you. If, if your church is cynical, you can give every theology for it you want, but if your church is cynical, the church is dying. We're called to be people of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so there is a certain naivete, whether it's or optimism, um, which is essential for people, uh, the people of God, I believe. And uh, for us, the glass is always half full. If we believe Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God. If we believe that Christ is building the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If we believe that God's mercy is in you every morning, the glass is half full. Now, uh, I'm very careful to check my facts. Um, I work very hard at that. And I feel that there is a, 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 a pull to two extremes. And, and, and both extremes are untrue. On one hand, there can be a pull to a sort of superficiality that makes out that everything is easy, and if we'll just do the right thing and pray in the right way, we'll get the right result, and it just isn't that simple. But on the other, and, and, and the church is often less honest than the Bible about the frustrations, the disappointment, the struggle of faith. Uh, but on the other hand, there's a real pull towards cynicism, where because of disappointment, pain, and the chaos of modern life, we start to think, well, there isn't a God, or if there is, he doesn't care, or he's a million miles away and disengaged. And that's just not true either. It often purports to be somehow authentic, but it isn't. It's a fallacy. And the, the paradox of faith, the paradox of discipleship, is to live with all that God has done and is doing, and then use that as fuel for the things that he has not done yet. Um, just finally, um, I got the impression in the book that you seem very confident that um, revival <laughs> I- is coming. That's a very different narrative to a lot of what we read about the church in this country. Um, where does that com- confidence come from? Well, I find it extraordinary that uh, almost every historical and theological marker of spiritual renewal you can tick that box right now. And I, I, don't, I don't believe that, you know, whether you call it awakening, renewal, re- revival, renaissance, whatever you call it, are we fully in it? No, of course we're not. But are there very, very encouraging signs that something has begun? Absolutely. So what are those signs? Well, firstly, the renewal of prayer that we're discussing right now is a move of the Spirit of God. That's encouraging because every revival, to use your language, begins with a movement of prayer. Secondly, uh, an increase in Christian unity, uh, which is, uh, is extraordinary. More and more people are uh, looking at other kinds of Christians and instead of saying what's wrong with them, saying what's right with them and how can I learn from them. 
Um, we're working with you know the Catholic Church at the highest levels and the Pentecostal Church. I mean, the, the extremes. So unity. Thirdly, uh, more and more churches are uh, engaging in, 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 in works of social transformation at quite an extraordinary level, and it's almost really ignored by the, 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 the London-based media. But, for example, a friend of mine in south, the southwest, in Yeovil, the local council has said, we want to give you all of the youth and children's work provision, except the stuff we legally have to do, which is around adoption and safeguarding. Everything else is being run by one local church, and that is not rare. Uh, we're seeing that more and more and more around the nation. And then um, we're seeing hotspots. We're seeing certain churches that are uh, growing quite dramatically and multiplying. Some of those would be Anglican. Um, I was just with my friend Tim Hughes, Gas Street Church in, in, in Birmingham, which is growing exponentially, baptizing people. They're not just people moving from other churches, people are coming to know Jesus. Uh, uh, vineyard churches are, are multiplying at an extraordinary rate. Uh, generally speaking, when churches are planted now, as they increasingly are, more and more bishops are opening their doors and saying we want to renew uh, existing parishes and even exp explore fresh expressions. If, if the, if, if the, if the uh, incumbent is sensible and not rude, generally their church is growing. Whereas a few years ago they had to be, you know, sort of pretty amazing to see that happen. And so, um, is this everything we're looking for? No. Is it a beginning? You better believe it. And as I, as I said earlier, you find faith for the things God has not done yet by celebrating the sparks of what he is doing and pouring petrol on them, by rejoicing in them and celebrating in them in prayer. And I do believe that Archbishop Justin has uh, set the tone for us by helping us to live with a bit more hope. Uh, a time of great chaos politically socially economically uh, ethically almost every level is a time of enormous opportunity for the unchanging gospel of jesus christ and we see evidence that people are hungrier than they have ever been thank you for listening to this week's episode of the church times podcast you can find more news analysis comment and book reviews on our website churchtimes.co.uk if you are not yet a subscriber to The Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.